Welcome to the Sunday Messages podcast from New Hope Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Our mission is to glorify God by making fully devoted followers of Christ, by belonging together, believing in Christ alone, and blessing our world. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we pray today's message brings you hope and help along the way. Amen. Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from his dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah. Heroes. Amen. This changes everything. The experience that we just celebrated over 2,000 years ago, it changes everything, not only in history and not only in the church's history, but in your life and my life. Not only did Jesus come back alive, but now my sins, the penalty for my sins has been paid in full. I can now have that eternal life. Death has been defeated. And it all happened so fast. I mean, it seems like it was just two days ago when we were focused on the tomb. Many of us here walked through our, our Good Friday experience yesterday and on Friday. And by the time we got to the end of that experience and saw all that had happened, all that had been said, all that had been done to Jesus up until his crucifixion, our hearts were broken. We were grieving. We were sorrowful, but that was nothing compared to what his disciples went through 2,000 years ago. They had all of those same feelings, all of those same emotions, but no time to grieve. They were scared to death. They had been too scared to even go to the crucifixion, much less to the tomb. They were hiding for their very lives. The Bible tells us they had locked the doors and locked the windows because they were sure that what their enemies had done to their Savior, Jesus, they were about to do with them. It happened so fast. They didn't even have time. I mean, have, have you ever thought about this? They didn't even have time to, to have a funeral for Jesus. He didn't even have a funeral. Sure, they quickly wrapped his body, maybe laid a few spices and oils on his body and quickly put him into the tomb, the borrowed tomb that wasn't even his. They closed the door quickly before the Sabbath and went home and before they could come back and prepare the body fully as a Jewish tradition said there would eventually be 75, even 100 pounds of spices and oils being laid on his body, but they didn't have time. They didn't even have a funeral for Jesus. I, I love funerals. Wait, that, that didn't sound right. I don't, I don't love funerals. I, I hope I never have to attend, participate in, or even officiate another funeral as long as I live because it is so painful, but... There are pieces and parts of a funeral that I really love. The typical conversation and superficial blah, blah that we kind of repeat back and forth all day long, all of our lives, suddenly melts away in the time of a funeral. When someone close to us has died and that has ripped our heart out, suddenly only the very most important things are said. 
There's a rawness to that time, a transparency to that time, an honesty to the words that we exchange with each other. That's exactly what God is calling us to. God is calling us to speak words of truth and honesty and transparency. So much of our lives today are focused on following after this brightly colored plastic imitation of what we believe life is to be like and life should be like. And in a time of funeral and the passing of someone that we love, we are allowed a peek behind the curtain to see what really matters, to see who really matters. And it is in times like that when we understand what is truly important. I believe that is why Good Friday and Easter Sunday is packed so closely together. That connection between life and death is intricate in our human existence. Now, most of us understand the connection between life and death. That is where we are all headed as long as we are here on this earth. We are nothing but a bunch of decaying bodies floating on a planet that is decaying through a solar system system that will eventually implode. But God says there is more than just that connection. There is not only the connection between life and death, but the connection between death and life. The connection between death and eternal life. And so when we come to a time in our life of a funeral and the death of someone we love, we are faced with the idea that there are things we cannot fix. We cannot buy our way out of, we cannot work our way out of, we cannot finagle our way out of, we cannot slyly sneak our way out of. There are some things we can't fix, and death is one of them, and eventually we cry out to God and say, God, I can't do it. That is his response. Jesus says, you can't do it, but I did it for you. This is the message of Easter. This is what God is trying to tell us. If only our world, our culture would understand that being independent and get her done and just do it and pull our own selves up by our own bootstraps and depend on him, everything would be different. But our world thinks so differently. I'm, I'm going to out myself. And you'll understand how old I really am when I say this. But I grew up on Sesame Street. Now, not literally on Sesame Street. I grew up in Miami, but I grew up watching Sesame Street. I loved it. It was a time before there was animated cartoons. It was, well, they weren't real. They were Muppets or puppets and some real people in there. But something happened on Sesame Street in 1982 that had never happened. There was a character. He was one of the live characters named Mr. Hooper. He suddenly passed away. The, the, the actor that played Mr. Hooper passed away of a heart attack. So they were faced with a dilemma. How do we address his death in a children's program on television? The easy answer was, well, Mr. Hooper has retired. He's moved down to Cape Coral, and he's very happy there. <laughs> Instead, they decided to, to face this dilemma, this theme of death for children head on. The very next show, Big Bird, you remember him? He walks out on the street carrying a, a hand-drawn picture. He says to the lady on the street, says, where's Mr. Hooper? I painted a picture for him. I want to give him a picture. And the lady says, oh, Big Bird, don't you remember? We told you Mr. Hooper's died. He's not coming back. He says, oh, that's okay. I'll wait. I'll give it to him when he does come back. And then she came and she gave Big Bird a big old hug and said, oh, Big Bird, Mr. Hooper's never coming back. When you die, 
you never come back. That's the gospel of Sesame Street. Guess what? The gospel of Jesus Christ is very different. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you die with the Lord Jesus in your heart, just like Jesus rose from their grave, you very much come back from death. And that is exactly what God is trying to teach us through this experience. The gospel of Sesame Street is a gospel of our world. But the gospel of Jesus is very different. It is normal for the world to not come back when you die. But God is not the God of normal. We've been walking through miracles for all of these weeks. Surely by now we understand that, that God is the God of exception. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read one, the, the, the Easter story comes up in all four of the Gospels. We're going to pull one of those stories out, out of the Gospel of John. In that story, we're going to read about three characters that play an integral role in that first Easter Sunday morning. More important than the role they play in the Easter story is the role that Jesus had played in their lives before this day to allow them to play a role in this part. When we look at their lives, I believe we'll be looking at our lives as well. To understand the Easter story, to understand the impact of what uh, a dead preacher a dead miracle maker, a dead Messiah who suddenly comes to life, what that has to do with our lives today, I think we very much need to understand their lives as well. So go ahead and open up your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 20. If you have a phone, you can aim it at the QR code. The, the Bible text and the sermon notes will pop up, or you can just follow along on the screen behind me. John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read this story and then dig into the lives of these three folks. You ready? John chapter 20, verse 1. So, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went up to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from its entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the stri strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in because it was dark, and it was a tomb, and what idiot walks into a dark tomb at night? But anyways, verse 6, oh, oh here's the idiot. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight in into this dark tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple worked up his nerve. He, he's the one who reached the tomb first. He also went inside. He saw and he believed. Verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying, the most anticlimactic verse in the entire story. They just... Well, they just went home. <laughs> All right, so let's dig into this story. We're going to understand better by, by digging into their lives, what brought them to this place, so that we understand what a difference this miracle, this resurrection of Jesus means in our life today. So we got, we got Mary Magdalene, we got Peter, and we have John. So here's how we're going to do it. 
Remember I told you a few weeks ago, we are preparing for a mission trip to Panama. Many of you met Sean and Shelly Blacks, and there are international missionaries down in Panama. We'll be visiting them for a week in July. The 12 of us that are going, we've begun meeting and preparing and, and, and getting ready and working on things. And, and one of the things we're preparing is how to tell our God story how we met God, what difference God has made in our lives. And we're, we're writing that down, and we're practicing telling that to each other. We're going to get it down to about three minutes. So if we, we only have one opportunity to share with someone on the street or in a classroom or in a cafe, we'll be ready to tell that story because our stories are so powerful. Well, this is how we're going to do it. We talk about what was your life like before you met Jesus? How did you know you needed Jesus? And what has your life been since you met Jesus? Very simply, three parts. That's how we're doing it in our, in our, in our mission trip group. That's how we're going to tackle it here with these three characters. Let's start with Mary Magdalene, see what it looks like. So first of all, Mary Magdalene, what was her life like before Christ? Now, you've probably heard her name before. Uh, Pastor Matt mentioned her this morning in the early morning service. All throughout the New Testament, she pops up. So, so we know a little bit about her, but what was her life like before she was the Mary Magdalene that we love to read about? Well, she was sick. No, no. She was really sick. It was not good. She was as, as ostracized as any woman in those days could have been. She was as far outside of the culture, as different from the, the, the normal, everyday woman, mother, sister, citizen could have been. In fact, look at the, look at the passage. Uh, Luke chapter 8 describes it this way when talking about her. Luke chapter 8 verse 1 says this. Luke chapter 8 verse 1, there you go. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve, the guys, the twelve were with him, verse 2, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Seven demons. What does that even look like? Can you imagine? Now, I know you kindergarten teachers, you have a pretty good idea, but what does... What? I should have said middle school teachers, but what does that look like? Seven D... Are you kidding me? I mean, we've all seen horror movies. We can imagine, you know, what, what one demon does to a poor kid or a poor person, but seven demons? I can't even imagine what a difference that had made in their life. We need to understand something. In, in biblical Israel, in, in, in 2,000 years ago, in their culture, the physical and the spiritual was very intertwined. We don't know if she had had mental problems and, and she was psychotic or all the problems she may have had or, or the demons came first or, or the psychosis came first or it was all intermingled. We don't know, but she was about as messed up, as maniacal, as, as otherworldly as any of us could imagine. I can't even imagine this woman was able to live inside the society. She probably lived out in the desert, out in the woods, out in the graveyards, or, or maybe she had gone into politics. But anyway, she was not not a part of the normal culture. She was on the fringes. 
She was excluded. She was otherworldly. It, it may have meant that she literally had seven different demons inside of her. That's what the Bible says. Or oftentimes when the Bible uses numbers like seven, it has a significance, a, a symbolism. Seven is the meaning, is a symbol of completeness. So even if it was that, it meant that she was completely, totally, wholly under the influence of an enemy God. And this God had total control of her life. Everything she did was otherworldly and different. Every relationship she had was toxic. Every decision she ever made was destructive for herself and for those around her. And every attitude she had was dysfunctional. How in the world did this woman know that she needed Jesus? Are you kidding me? <laughs> How did she not know she needed Jesus? The Bible says that she was uh, 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 released from these seven demons, and I believe it was because she knew she needed and God saw her in her state. And yet so many of us know that we need that freedom. So many of us sense or feel or, or even have been told by others that we need that same kind of release, that same kind of freedom, that God would come and free us from what is tormenting us, controlling us, having us coldly and totally under his control, and yet we're so willing to continue on because at least it's not seven demons we tell ourselves. She was lucky. She did have seven. It was pretty clear she needed help. But what happened when she said yes to Jesus and Jesus entered her life and Jesus did that miracle of casting out these demons and removing that oppression, that control of the enemy God and allowing her to live out her life as a follower of Christ? What happened? Everything changed. When we read lists of ladies in the New Testament who served Jesus, she's always in the list. Not only is she always in the list, she's always listed number one. The only other disciple that is even a little bit like that would be Peter. In all the lists, he's always number one. So was she. She is listed in the New Testament more than half of the male disciples. Her name, Mary Magdalene, it probably named after the city of Magdala. But Magdala also meant a, a strong tower, a pillar in the middle of a fortress. Many believe that she was not only a, a leader and, a, and an example and a, and a disciple for the women, but for the women and for the men in those days, she was a strong tower of faith among that early church, those followers of Jesus. God had taken her from a, a fringe person with zero influence to being a woman of great influence in the movement of God. This is what God does when he changes a life. That's Mary Magdalene. Let's look at Peter. What was his life like? First of all, we start with the same question. What was his life like before he met Jesus? Well, you may remember what he did for a living. He was a fisherman, right? Many of the guys were fishermen. Fishermen in those days, much like fishermen today, unless you're retired like Captain Phil and you go out fishing for fun, they, they were mostly poor. They didn't have a lot of money. The Bible says he had a boat, he had some nets, he had some family members helping him, but that was it. In fact, there was a word for people like him in the old language, the Amharets. It's a, a, a people group, and it means pretty much people of the land, right? So, so country folk, uh, folks from Arkansas, for example. And so I... I, I <laughs> no, I'm teasing. No, it's mostly Kentucky folks. So it's... it's um, no, no. So, so these folks, like, like, like Peter, they, they would have been you know, good, hardworking folks, but because they did not have 
a ton of money or a ton of education. They couldn't go to schools, couldn't go to universities, couldn't go to the, the, the Sabbath schools and do all the, the Bible learning, the Torah learning, they called it back then. They didn't have a strong connection to the religious world. They were pretty much known as being fine, hardworking folks, but not especially religious. They rarely followed the laws, the testaments, the commands of God because they were just so busy just getting by and working hard. They didn't have it. This is the guy that God tries to, decides to use. This is the guy that Jesus goes after. In fact, there's a, there's a scripture in, in Acts chapter 4. Let me read it for you where it kind of describes what kind of guy he was. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 says this. There it is. After, uh, when he saw the courage of Peter and John, these are the, the Pharisees, the enemies, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Those two words are key. Unschooled, the Bible says, and ordinary. Unschooled is the, the word agrammatica. You can kind of imagine what that means. Those that weren't grammatical, poor guy, couldn't put a sentence together, the Bible says. And then that word for ordinary is an interesting word. Here's the Greek word. Let's see if you recognize it in English. Idiotes. Yeah. Yeah, that's not what you want to read about in the Bible. Peter's like, wait, erase that. <laughs> Not, not in the sense that we would call someone an idiot, but someone who is unschooled, uneducated. This is the guy that God goes after. This is the guy that Jesus says, I want you on my team. This was his life before. How many of us have felt the same way? God, you can't use me. I don't have the right pedigree. I don't come from the right family. I don't have the right education. I don't have the right skill set. I haven't honed my gifts like the other guy or the other gal. How can you use me? How did a guy like Peter even realize that he needed Jesus? There's a great story. We won't have time to read this over in Luke chapter 5 where, where Jesus, as always, he is so smooth. Jesus is like the smoothest guy ever, ever, ever. He's wanting to preach a sermon. He could have preached it anywhere. He decides he wants to get up high so folks can see him and hear him. There's a bunch of boats on the shore. All the boats are there. All the boats are available. Well, because he's Jesus, he picks Peter's boat. Peter's in the back of the boat kind of licking his wounds. He'd been out fishing all night long, caught a goose egg, nothing. Spent all night, all that energy. So he's back there just cleaning his nets, not listening to anything Jesus saying, just getting his work done so he can finally go to sleep. He didn't miss a word. At the end of the message, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Hey, I know you're tired. I know you've had a rough night, but you didn't catch anything. Why don't you head out one more time, but this time throw your nets on the other side. He, th he says, well, I, I don't imagine that's going to bring anything. I mean, I'm a fisherman. I do it every day. You're a carpenter slash preacher. What do you know? But because you're Jesus, I'll do it. He does it. They catch so many fish, they can't pull them in. 153 large fish, the Bible says. At that point, he realizes that Jesus is not only the king of religious stuff, the king of the church world, but Jesus is also the king of the fish world. Jesus is the king of Peter's world, and it changes everything. And Peter follows him radically. Now, we come to the next question. What was his life like since Jesus? Now, this is a little bit more complicated, certainly more complicated than Mary Magdalene. We saw a tremendous rise, improvement, incredible strengthening in her life that we do not always see in Peter. 
he had his ups and downs. If you've been around the Bible at all, if you've attended church much in the past, you would have heard some of those ups and downs from his life. It started with a bang. In fact, in the New Testament, looking at the lives of the disciples, guys like John, for example, they're mentioned about 20 times in the New Testament. That's incredible if you think about it, to come up 20 times in the Bible and God's word. Peter comes up 120 times, six times more often than the other guys. God is clearly moving. God, uh, Jesus even gives Peter a, a really cool nickname, kind of a superhero name. He calls him the rock. You know, he's, he's called, now Jesus also called him Satan another time, but that's, that's a different story. So, so there's, there's all kind of interaction between Peter and Jesus, Peter and God. He is growing. He becomes the great water walker. You remember that story? But he also at the end becomes a great belly flopper. He had this incredibly public incredibly embarrassing, horrific crash. He claimed as loud as he could, I will follow you, Jesus, anywhere you go, even unto death. Before he fell asleep that night, he had denied Jesus gloriously, publicly, horrendously, three times in front of total strangers that had zero influence over his life. He pulled away from Jesus. In fact, we just read the story about Peter and John running to the tomb. Sure, Peter runs in first, but who believes? The Bible is very clear. That very clearly says that John saw and believed not a peep about Peter. All we hear is that he turned around and went home. In fact, shortly after that, Jesus appears not much from Peter. And shortly after that, all we know from Peter is that that's it. I'm going back fishing. Fast forward to the end of the story. Jesus shows up at the beach where the guys are out fishing. They've been out there all night long. Again, goose egg, nothing. They're coming back exhausted without any food at all. The thing that Peter thought he could depend on, the life that Peter thought he could go back to, brought him zero. Jesus calls out, hey, you guys, give it one more shot. Throw out the net another time. Let's see what happens. Again, Peter, are you kidding me? Who does this guy think he is? We've been out here all night. I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. But what the heck? Let's give it a shot. So many fish, they couldn't pull them in. Immediately, Jesus realized, puts one and one together. This is just like the time I met Jesus, just like the time I believed in Jesus. He jumps in the water, makes it all the way to the, to the beach, and there's Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus was kind of frying up some fish, getting it ready for the guys. He knew they'd be hungry. He wanted to enjoy the fellowship with him. Jesus was a true Baptist. Anytime they got together, they were going to eat. And so he's getting the fish ready. And you know where he's getting the fish ready over? He's getting it over an Anthrakian fire. What is an Anthrakian fire? Well, that's a Greek word. It means a coal fire. There's only two places in the whole Bible where this word Anthrakian comes up. An Anthrakian fire, a coal fire, comes up here when Jesus is preparing the fish for the guys. And it's just a few hours before, in the temple courts, as Jesus is being uh, tried inside with a high priest, Peter's out there with a bunch of total strangers standing around an Anthrakian fire, denying Christ three times. And now here we are again in an Anthrakian fire, and Jesus asked, not once, not twice, but three times, Peter, do you love me? 
Now, this would have been, this should have been Peter's uh, uh, cue to go off and start promising the world and, and making bold claims and bold promises that he probably would never be able to, to cash in. But this time is different. He says, Jesus, oh, I wish I could. I want to. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do that again. I don't know if I can agape you, Father, Lord, but I know I can filios you, brotherly love you, have, 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 have great feelings for you. Again, he asked the same answer. Again, he asked. And still the same. God had knocked him down a peg or ten. And his honesty struck Jesus. He said, okay, I can work with this. Let's start here, Peter, and let's see what God does through you. This is what God does with us in moments of honesty and transparency. When God knocks us down a few pegs because of our big, bold mouth and all the promises we make, God says, if you would just be straight with me, I can start with that. I can begin with that. And he takes Peter and turns him into a rock that he can build his church on. Folks, so many of us have failed publicly, embarrassingly, in front of our whole family, in front of our whole world, in front of our whole church family, some even publicly in the news. God is a God of redemption. If that's you, you're in good company. Peter did too, and look what God did through him. And then thirdly, we need to look at the life of John. Again, the question, what was John's life before he met Jesus? Well, as we just said, most of the disciples, like Peter, were pretty simple, not especially wealthy, in fact, probably even poor. Not so with John. He came from a, a prominent family. The Bible says, in fact, if you remember the story Peter and John are trying to get into the temple courts as Jesus in the trial. Peter can't get through. Suddenly the Bible says John was allowed in. John had been recognized by the high priest. They knew his name. He had some pull. Now we know from the Bible that he was a young kid, maybe a teenager. I don't know that John had pull, but probably his parents did. If you, in another passage in the Bible, we read about the calling of John and his brother James, they literally left the fishing boat of their father, but they didn't leave it in their father's hands, Zebedee, or the hands of Zebedee and their other brothers. The Bible says they left it in the hands of Zebedee and his hired men. This guy had a, had a commerce going, a, a business going, one boat, two boats, ten boats, we don't know, but he had hired helpers. Tom, uh, John came from some money, but he had a problem. Look at uh, Mark chapter 3, verse Nine, uh, 17, it says this. Mark chapter 3, verse 17 says, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now you talk about a cool superhero name. <laughs> that, is, that is exactly the one you want, unless you dig into that word Boanerges. Now yes, it means thunder, because clearly it's translated thunder. It also meant rage. Rage. Young kid, wealthy family, religious, probably even fundamentally so, and rage anger issues. It's a ticking time bomb. This is who this kid was. In fact, there's another story in the Bible. Uh, he's already been with Jesus for a while. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 53 through 55. But the people there did not welcome him because Jesus was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, this John, when they saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? 
But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So this kid, he's still not getting He's been with Jesus. He's been walking with Jesus. But this early, youthful, young, uh, always right, I know better kind of rage is, is lashing out at anyone that would disrespect his Lord or, I imagine, disrespect him as well. Well, how did a kid like this turn? How did, how did his life change? How did he even know that he needed Jesus? Look at that same passage one more time. Verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, in our language, rebuke sounds harsh. It sounds like discipline. It sounds like pushback. It sounds like scolding. And it is in English. That's exactly what the word means. But in, in, there's a subtle nuance in the original language that means to, to turn around and to convince of or to demonstrate or to show the true weight of something. So what is Jesus doing? He doesn't wheel around and knock him upside the head. He doesn't wheel around and give him a scolding. He doesn't wheel around and yell at him for 10 minutes until he finally gets it right. He turns around and he walks him through a better way, the best way. He is turning this guy full of rage, full of himself, into what the Bible calls the apostle of love. What was his life like after this experience with Jesus? The Bible is, is full of it. John wrote uh, the Gospel of John, the letters from John, and then the book of Revelation, three books. In those three books, he uses the word love more than any other writer in the New Testament. 81 times. Paul, the second most, only used it 31 or 41. So not, not even half as often as John did. He becomes the apostle, the doctor of love. Everything, God has melted his heart. The anger, the frustration, the, the, the self-centeredness is gone. He outlived all the other disciples. Everyone looking at him in the younger years said, he's going to be dead by 42, a heart attack, that guy. He outlives them all because God changed his heart. Maybe you're like John, and you're still very much in that impulsive stage when, when, when your impulses are not only real and, and present, they've actually be, begun to control you. Jesus can change you. Jesus changed John. He can change us. These are three examples of, of believers that, that were radically changed by the power of that resurrection, that first resurrection Sunday. That can change our lives as well. As we read through the Bible, there are all kinds of words and, and descriptors and, and, and adjectives to describe those who believe in Jesus, not just believers, but we are called, we are called chosen, we are called special, we are called salt, we are called light. We are called servant, we are called slave, we are called peculiar, and we are called holy. All of those put together, not one of them means normal. God is not the God of normal. Normal is what the world is preaching outside of the body of Christ. God is the God of exception, and he is calling us to live that world. Normal says that when you enter a lion's den, you will be ripped to shreds, and you will die as lion food. The exception says you walk out unharmed. Normal is when you're thrown into a fiery furnace, and you burnt your crisp 
The exception says that you dance around that fiery furnace and you walk out without a singed hair or the smell of smoke in your clothes. Normal says you go into a tomb and you rot there for three days and there is nothing but the stench of death. The exception says that you walk out of that tomb holding the keys of death and hell in your hands. Our God is a God of the exception, not the norm. Maybe you're like Mary. Maybe you, uh, your, your life is otherworldly. <laughs> you feel like you are so oppressed and possessed and under the influence of everything else except for God. But when God finds you, he will turn you into a woman, into a man of great spiritual influence. Maybe you're like Peter. You are so sure of your own rightness <laughs> that you love to tell everyone about it. You promote yourself more than others, and there's been a big or many big public failures. God will grab a hold of you and turn you into a powerful rock on which he can build his church. Or maybe you're like this John kid. You're young and you're fiery, maybe even filled with rage, and you have nowhere to turn it, and so you're lashing out at those closest to you, but God can grab a hold of your heart and turn you into a self-sacrificing, loving grandfather, grandmother in the faith. God is in the life-changing business. He's making exceptions for you and for me. At the end of our life, after we're gone, it won't even be your choice, probably. There's going to be a, a tombstone bought in your honor. And they might be all kind of stuff on there, depending on how much money they want to spend. But, but two things will be there, a birth date and a death date. And between those two dates, there's going to be a dash. That's it. Your life is meant to be more than a dash. In the world, that's the norm. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is never the norm. If you would allow God to make an exception in your life and give you an exceptional life like he did for Mary and, and Peter and John and so many of us here in this room, this is your opportunity. This is your day. This could be your day of resurrection. We would celebrate it with you. In just a moment, we're going to pray and we're going to give you that very opportunity. I'm going to say a prayer and I'd like you to pray with me if this is something God has been talking to you about. This is not by chance that you are here on Easter Sunday. This is not by chance that you have been hearing stories that speak right to your heart. God has been writing these words for thousands of years waiting for this very morning. Will you say yes to him? I'm going to start praying, and then in a moment I'll ask if anyone wants to just pray after me. I'll, I'll invite you to do that. After that, I'll kind of give you few, uh, final instructions. Lord, I want to pray for my friends and my brothers and sisters this morning. What a celebration this is. Celebrate all that you did in our world to change our world, and now what you're doing in us, in our lives, to change our lives. Father God, please allow us today to know that resurrection power. I pray especially for my friends who are here who, would not, who do not yet know that power in their own lives. They've seen it in family members. They've seen it in friends. They've read it in books, but it's not real to them yet. God, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. This would be their resurrection day.
So God, I, I invite those folks to simply pray in their hearts this simple prayer after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. For rising from the grave in resurrection power. Forgive me, Jesus, for my sins. Jesus, I accept you as my Savior because I cannot save myself. And Jesus, I accept you as Lord, asking that you would lead me every step of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. You can find more free resources, learn about our church, and partner with us financially when you visit us online at newhopecapecoral.com. Also, if you have a question or a story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on the contact page, once again, at newhopecapecoral.com. Finally, if this message was a blessing to you, would you take a moment to share that blessing with others? You can do that by subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen, and by leaving a review to share your story with others. Thanks again for tuning in and for helping us share the hope of Jesus with the world he loves. We'll see you next time.